Let me open us up in prayer. There's a couple of us missing because there's a few of us who ended up in the Mercy Ministry group. Um, but that's okay. It's going to be nice and intimate today. So let me pray for us and then we'll get right into it. And then we'll, here's what we're going to cover today. We're going to, um, I feel like from last week, we still are groping for how it is to draw the main idea from a passage. And last week we took a look at an Old Testament narrative, First Kings chapter 3. But I think we're just going to hone in a little bit more and as a group, um, get our handle a little bit more on how to draw the main idea from a particular passage, especially from a narrative. We're going to go through a familiar narrative that we just preached from a few weeks ago, John 13, the Judas narrative. And then I'll show you exactly how I broke that passage up, how I drew the main idea from it. And then we're going to, as a whole group, go on Mark chapter 2, and then as a whole group, break down that passage together rather than in small groups. And then um, at the second half for today, we're going to take a look at how to interpret the Psalms. All right? Yep, Joanna. No, it's fine. Yes. Right. Yes. I think, yeah, so I think, so for example, Kling talked about the determinate meaning or the sense of the text. There's a central sense of the text that's probably being communicated by the text, but there's determinate ideas around it that you can still hone in on without veering off from the meaning of the text. And so you can do that. So I think sometimes it's warranted in a sermon where maybe the central idea is something a little bit different from what the congregation might need at that particular point. So you want to hone in on that maybe less central idea, but for the sake of the congregation, we'll put that on. Yeah. What did you, just out of curiosity, what did you? Okay. <laughs> right. I can't believe it's in six days since that Genesis. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so like, Tazar honed in on um, the fact that Jacob was at peace because he prayed for the promises of God, for example. Right. Whereas another sense that you can get from the passage is um, the, the necessity of reconciliation, maybe. That. Yeah. And focus on the transformation, right. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, but I think, I think you can get the sense of like Jacob, the deceiver, but, but showing how, um, God's grace still transforms somebody like that. So I don't know. That would have... So it's not fully there, the, the transformation. Yeah, I mean, you could definitely read it that way. And then you can read how he wrestles with God in, the, in this week's passage as the, a, another pivotal moment in his transformation. So you can read it. I don't think he was perfected, but definitely there was a, a transition from how he was. Yeah, he actually prayed this time. Yeah. Um, something I read in my, in my study, 
Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. But yeah, so I think the sense of determinate meaning that Clint talked about is really, really helpful. And there is a kind of freedom there. So, so there is a sense in which even though you're reading the passage and you're getting a meaning out of it, even though it might not be the point emphasized by the sermon, it doesn't mean that you're completely off. All right. Good. But yeah, I hope that will be clearer again as we go here together. Okay, let me pray for us. Father, help us now um, understand how to read your Bible well. Help us be patient readers. Help us attend to the, to the features of the text so that we might understand um, not only who you are, but how we are to live in light of who you are and the kind of acts that you've done for us on our behalf. And may we then fall in deeper love of you. So, Father, uh, help us today. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, from what I'm getting from our last two weeks together, I feel like we're getting a grasp on the first step that Kling talked about, which is uh, paying attention to context, right? We talked a lot about the historical context, the literary context, and the canonical context, or the redemptive context in which the passage is in. But I feel like, so, so remember Kling's three-step approach. There's contextual analysis, historical, literary, redemptive, and then there's literary analysis, which is just getting the bearings of the text itself, isolating it from the rest of the passages, knowing where your passage begins and ends, and the genre of the text, enjoying the main idea from that text, and then the last step of contextualization. So today we're going to hone in a little bit more on that second step. How do we draw the main idea from a passage, especially in the genre of narrative, which is where we've been in the first and second week. We saw uh, Clint took us to John 3, and passages in, in, in the Gospel of John, and I took us through First Kings 3 last week, and we're going to take a look at more narratives today so we can get a, a, gl- a, a greater glimpse of how to draw the main idea. Because I felt like last week when we, took like, when we took a look at First Kings 3, for example, we honed in a lot on the historical details, the higher places, the marriage with the Egyptian, right? Um, but we didn't actually get to what I thought was the main idea of the passage, which was, was, was Solomon asking for wisdom from God, right? and how he woke up with that wisdom, and why he asked for the wisdom from God. Um, we were instead lost a little bit on the historical details of the first few verses, and we didn't really get to the last, the main core, I think, of the passage. So we're going to try to get our bearings on that. I know I mentioned that we're going to cover Revelation, potentially, but I thought there, was, there might be too much. We might have a whole cohort in the book of Revelation one day, um, so that might be of interest to you. So let me just... Um, go through that second part of Clink's understanding, right? Literary analysis. How do we draw the main idea from a particular narrative? How do we draw the main idea from a, from, from a text? So the first step that you want to do in a narratival analysis or an analysis of a particular narrative is to isolate the text. Here's where the subtexts of your particular Bibles may be useful. So you know how when you read your Bibles in the English translations, they oftentimes divide the chapter into particular subdivisions, and then they name it with a particular subtitle, right? So turn your Bibles, for example, to John chapter 13. Um, If you take a look at John chapter 13, you're going to see, if you're using the ESV or the NIV, particular subtitles. And remember that the subtitles and the chapter and verse divisions are not in the original Greek text. So when the translators or the editors of the English translation is doing this for you, they're making interpretive judgments about where a particular story or a passage begins and ends. 
So in, in the Gospel of John chapter 13, for example, you're going to see um, in verse 18 for some of your Bibles, a subtext or subdivision on um, Jesus predicting P Peter's betrayal, for example, right? Or Jesus and the new commandment. Do you see those subtitles? You see those subtitles, don't you? So which means that the translator or the editors of this particular translation is telling you, here's where a new unit begins, and then when a new subtitle comes in, here's where the unit ends. That's what Clink talked about when he talked about isolating a main passage, right? When you're going to preach from a sermon, when you're going to preach a sermon from a particular text, for example, you have to decide where does the sermon, uh, where does sermon text begin and where does it end, right? Um, if you're going to preach about Judas's betrayal, um, as I'm about uh, to demonstrate for us here, you're going to begin the text at verse 21, where I think there are there is a clear indication that this is a new pericope, a new passage, a new um, section being introduced, and you're going to end in verse 30, all right? So you're going to isolate a narrative text. So when you took a look at 1 Kings 3 last week, there were clear indicators that 1 Kings 3 started a new section, right? So it says that Solomon got married, or after these particular things, Solomon fell into a dream. So somehow it was transitioning from David's words to Solomon, 1 Kings 2, and then Solomon now entering into this dream. So David's words in 1 Kings 2 was, in a sense, a subtitle or subdivision of that particular book. And then now it's transitioning into Solomon's dream and Solomon's request for wisdom. Um, so when you're preaching from a passage, you might end one sermon on, on David's last words to Solomon, 1 Kings 2, and then now you might begin a new sermon in the new week on, on Solomon's prayer for wisdom, right? So you got to isolate a narrative text. You got to know where it begins and where it ends. So let me just take a look at, uh, first, uh, at John 13 with you. Notice the very beginning of John 13. It says very clearly, after saying these things, right? That's a clear indicator. After saying these things, you're going to see this a lot in the Gospels, right? When Jesus uh, ends a parable or when Jesus does a miracle, normally there's a kind of conclusion where it says something like, everyone was amazed or some people believed, some people doubted. And then suddenly there's a transitionary phrase called after saying these things or after these events, signaling to you that here is where a particular passage begins again. So notice in John 13, 21, it says, after saying these things, tr Jesus was troubled in his spirit. So John 13, 21 signals an ending of one passage, which is Jesus washing the disciples' feet, and the beginning of another, which is Jesus now um, predicting Judas's betrayal. So in a particular narrative, normally, what you get when you, when you are isolating a section or a text is you get a setting. You get a setting where um, the narrator introduces where this thing is taking place or after what, right? The, sequen the sequence of events, the characters being involved. So just notice in John 13, 21, it says, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. So the narrator wants you to shift from, uh, for example, Peter receiving the washing of the feet, 
um, Jesus talking about how they should love one another and now shifting the focus from those things to Jesus being troubled in the spirit. Jesus is about to say something else, right? Just if you're still in John 13, for example, in your Bibles, notice verse 1 of John 13, how it was transitioning as well from the events of John 12 to the Passover feast or the, the Last Supper that Jesus is having with his disciples. Look at John 13, verse 1, how this sets up the scene. It was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. Having loved the one who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. The evening meal was being served, and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Notice how then, John 12 was, was ending, and John 13 began with this scene of a new time, for example, right? Jesus was predicting some things in John 12. He was, he was preaching to particular folks of people. And now John 13 comes in. A new setting is here. There's a new time right before the Passover feast. New characters are being introduced. Jesus was with his disciples. And now the devil is being introduced. The father is being introduced here. So again, you're seeing a transition into a new subtext or a new section, a new passage, right? So you want to isolate that. You want to notice that the transitionary phrases and then you're noticing that this is a setting. And normally the main point of the passage is not in the setting. The setting sets up um, where the main point is going to be. But it, the main point is not going to be in the setting. It sets it up, but the main point is not going to be there. It tells you the new place, the new time, the new characters being involved in the scene. right? Just think about a movie, for example. Um, what movie can I spoil this time? I don't know. Um, let's not spoil, uh, I don't know, the Avengers. Everybody's seen the Avengers by now, right? Okay. I'm scared. Never mind. Let's just not <laughs> use any more <laughs> movie examples. So, sorry. The Bridge of Spies. People have forgotten about that. That was three years ago. That was way too long ago. Um, but, but normally, if you, if you watch particular movies, right, um, a cut takes place and then a new scene is introduced, right? Um, maybe this is an easy example, Mission Impossible. Mission Impossible, for example, in any of one of the movies, there are normally three different um, set locations. It's like Dubai, and then somewhere in Europe, and then like the climax, like in Hong Kong or something, like in Mission Impossible 3, right? There are three set pieces, and then the scenes are organized according to the set pieces, and then normally in the beginning of the scene, there's like this airplane shoot of, of the whole city, introducing you to the setting where this is going to take place. Like the Dubai scene, there was an aerial scene of the tower where Tom Cruise is going to climb that tower. Remember that? Right? And then normally there's a whole story that unfolds within that, and it's a self-contained unit. After the Dubai scene, and then there's a new scene that takes place in a completely new location, built on the Dubai scene, but technically, when it moves from Dubai to, say, Europe at the last ending of that movie, Ghost Protocol, I think it was Europe, right? Before Dubai was Russia, and then Russia was Dubai, and then Dubai was somewhere in Europe. I think that's where it was. Each scene in that new setting builds on the last setting and the last scene, but is relatively its own story, right? Do you guys remember this movie at all? Sort of? Sort of, okay. So in the same sense, John 13 can be divided into particular scenes. And John 13, 21 starts a new scene with a new setting. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Notice it's almost as if the camera moves away from the washing of the disciples' feet 
and that focuses on G- Jesus being anguished, right? And so the setting refocuses us, and, and you've got to notice these transitions. And I chose just the first part of verse 21 as the setting. Look at that. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in spirit, and he, he testified. That, to me, is the setting. So you're, you should feel the freedom to notice the setting even when the verse hasn't ended yet. It's only the first half of verse 21 that I think is the setting of the passage. And then the moment he starts testifying, I think the second start or the second phase of the scene is happening, rising action. Where a new conflict is about to take place. And in any scene of any story, for it to be a full scene, you need a setting, you need a rising action where you're anticipating a great conflict. And then the climax where the conflict is really coming to a head. And then finally a resolution. You see what I mean? So if, if it's the Dubai scene and Ghost Protocol in Mission Impossible, you have Dubai as the main setting, and then the rising action was how um, they were trying to set up this deal with the diamonds with the Leah Sidhu character. I think that's how you pronounce her name. And then they're trying to negotiate that, and then the rising action is that there, there's a bunch of deceptions being unfolded, and then finally the climax of the scene was a motorcycle chase throughout a desert storm, right? But, but, but that motorcycle chase didn't happen in isolation. There were things that happened that led up to that motorcycle scene. And then finally, the resolution was, maybe there wasn't one, where you know, Tom Cruise lost the enemy or something like that, or Tom Cruise won, whatever that scene might, might have ended. But notice, in a self-contained scene, there's always a setting, a rising action, a climactic head of that conflict, and then finally, a resolution or a consequence of the conclusion of the conflict's climax, you see. So notice... If, if that's the setting, Jesus being troubled and he testifying, the rising action, I think, begins in 21b, or the second half of verse 21, where it says, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And notice, when, you, when, when, when Jesus says, truly, truly, you're already anticipating something. One of you is going to betray me. So you're, you're not wondering, okay, some conflict is brewing up here. So the disciples looked at one another. Who is it that was going to betray Jesus? And then one of his disciples whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. And so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So there's, again, this, this conflict that is brewing, and Simon Peter and John are looking at each other, wondering who it is that would betray Jesus. So that disciple, or the beloved disciple, John, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So this is anticipating. You're like wondering, okay, He's, he's giving this morsel of bread to somebody. That morsel of bread will indicate who the betrayer would be. So if you're, if you're kind of picturing the scene, you have the setting here at the very beginning, and that's verse 21a. And then you have the rising action. And then you might say that that's verse 21b to 26a. And notice again how I'm breaking up the, the, the verse divisions, right? It's, 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 it's not in accordance exactly to how the verses end. So 26a, I think, is where kind of a cliffhanger is, right? Jesus is about to give this morsel of bread, and before the next part of this verse, you're, not, you're still wondering, who is it? Who is he going to give this morsel of bread to? So Jesus answered, it is to whom I give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. And the climax, I think, comes... In verse 26b, to verse 29, 
And normally, friends, the main idea or the main point that, the, the, this, that a passage is trying to convey to you is where the climax is, okay? If this is the climax, the main point is probably going to be somewhere here, okay? Look at what it says in the climax. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas. Okay, now so we know. This is a climactic moment. Judas is actually the betrayer. Judas, the, the, the one who keeps the money, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Notice the timing of when Satan comes in. It was right after he had taken the morsel. It's almost as if Jesus had to give permission for Satan to enter. And Jesus said to him, what are you going to do? Do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money back, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast or that he should give something to the poor. So here's the climactic moment. Jesus gives this bread to Judas. Satan enters to Judas. And notice the climax is, is potent. It's, it's telling you nobody expected it to be Judas. In other words, Judas looked like an obedient disciple like everybody else. All right? That there, there's a climactic moment there. And notice the resolution comes, I think, in verse 30, which tells you the consequences or kind of the, the fallouts of that particular climax. If Judas really is the one who's going to betray Jesus, um, if, 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 if Judas is now revealed, what is going to happen now? Well, notice in verse 30 it says, so after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. In other words, Judas is now going to unfold the events that would lead to Jesus' crucifixion. And it was night. Uh, and the narrator is trying to indicate to you if it's nighttime, something bad is about to happen. Do you see what I mean? Um, if you've seen the, the opening of A Quiet Place, I've spoiled this movie, so I'm going to spoil it for you, right? The opening of A Quiet Place was an entire scene by itself. And notice that the, 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 the climax of the opening scene was the youngest kid dies, right? And when the youngest kid dies, the resolution was, what, what is the family going to do? What are the implications of this? What, what is, what is going to happen with the fact that they have survived for this long and now this youngest child, just because he turned on a spaceship toy, was killed by the monster? What's going to happen? That's the resolution of it. The climax was him turning on the toy and the monster rushing in. The resolution was the shocked faces of the family, right? They're looking at each other. They're like, what is going to happen now? And the new scene happens, right? 365 or so days later, um, something else is about to take place. You see what I mean? So a, a scene ends and another scene was beginning. So go ahead, end it. Narrative, yeah. Most of the times, actually, I think that I agree with the subsections of where the translators and the editors, it's actually quite helpful. Um, other times, maybe I would include one or two verses from previous passages where I think should should be included in subsection. It really does depend on the particular passage. But this one, I, I chose this particular text for this as an example because I think it's such a neat, self-contained scene. And I, th I think after this, there's going to be a new scene that starts with Peter boasting, like, I'm never going to betray you, right? And then... Jesus talking about the new commandment and stuff like that. Um, so I do most of the times agree with the, the subsections of the editors where they've chosen to, to isolate texts. Does that make sense? And just keep in mind, when I say isolate a unit, I don't mean like blind yourself from the contextual, literary, historical clues. I mean, 
narratively like notice where the scene begins and ends and then locate the scene in its historical and literary context throughout the whole book, redemptively, of course you do that. But you need to isolate where the text begins and ends for you to interpret the passage and see the main point of that particular passage. So, any questions on that point? You see how I think you could diagram it pretty neatly and then you got the resolution at the end where you kind of transition into a new scene, but verse 30, I think is the resolution where he went out, and so the implications of this is the, the, the events that would lead to the crucifixion of Jesus would now begin. You see what I mean? Now, there might be subpoints to it, but here's the main idea that I got for you from this passage. And if you were here in the sermon a few weeks ago when we preached about Judas, um, you would have gotten the same. It says that here, the betrayal of Judas against Jesus was not only predicted, but under the authority of Jesus' control. Notice how I'm getting that straight from the climax, right? Jesus gives the morsel of bread to Judas. So the prediction comes from the rising action, but the, the authority of Jesus, I think that's being highlighted here, that only when Jesus gives the bread to Judas, does Satan enter into Judas, and then Ju Judas um, goes out. You see, so I think that's the main idea of the passage. So notice the main idea is not Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and so he, as the perfect man, shows us that we can be troubled too sometimes. That's a sub-point, right? But if you preach a sermon, and you're getting at this passage, and then your main point is that, you know, you got to develop emotional health. You've missed the point. That might be a sub-point. You could touch on that at the very beginning of the sermon. You could say, all right, Jesus was the perfect man, all right? So he exemplifies to us what a perfect man looks like, and a perfect man, therefore, can be troubled. The Christian life is not one in which you can just cruise through life without any troubles, but rather perfection could still look like you being anguished, you being troubled. Sure, that's a great point. But if you make that the main point of this passage and not... Judas's betrayal being under the authority of Jesus, I think you've missed the thrust of the passage. Does that make sense? It's a sub-point, but it is not the main point. You can also make this, you know, another sub-point that I, that I listed there was just the nature of betrayal. You can talk about how a betrayal shocks you. You never really expected. The disciples had no idea that this was coming. But as, again, I don't think the main point is an analysis of what betrayal looks like. Again, make that a sub-point, but make your main point be, look, Jesus was in control of this. There, this was not something that, that, that came to him as a surprise. Rather, he was doing this on your behalf, right? Another sub-point could be Peter and John's closeness to Jesus. You can make this passage, to be honest, about friendship, right? You can talk about how when you're close friends with somebody, you can sit with that person without any words and it, was not, it would not be awkward, right? If you're close friends with someone, you can have a coffee with them and not say anything. And both of you are on your phones, and you wouldn't say that it's an awkward time. But rather, because you're so close, you don't have to say a single word to one another, and you know that the relationship is never jeopardized, even by the quietness. And so G John and Peter was so close that they could signal to one another, and they could know what each other is thinking, dis despite there being no words being spoken. Now, if you make the passage about friendship, though, <laughs> you've missed the point. You see what I mean? It's another sub-point. And John's reclining to the sovereign king, I think that's an implication, but I don't think that's, again, the main point, right? I, th I do think the text calls you to say, 
rests on the fact that Jesus took on Satan on your behalf. But I think, again, the main point is Jesus being under, be, be, being the true authority, even over his own betrayal. So then contextualization flows out of that, and application points. So if you're feeling betrayed, remember, God is in control. God was the one betrayed for you. He never is taken by surprise. And look at Jesus' loving attitude towards the betrayer. How do you feel when someone betrays you, right? Notice how Jesus was not only not surprised, but he took the ultimate betrayal for you, so now you could be patient towards those who betray you. And Jesus was betrayed for you, so rest on Jesus' side because he's done it all. He's taken that ultimate betrayal, so you don't have to. So any small betrayals that you do face should remind you of the fact that the ultimate betrayal was already under Jesus' control and faced by Jesus himself. Does that make sense? You see where I'm going with all that? Any questions about that method? Yeah, so I think one strategy is um, just keep reading, and if you see another setting or transitionary phrase, you've missed the climax. I think that's a really good way of thinking about it. So if you, if you just keep reading, and then notice verse 31. Look at what it says. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. So notice the transitionary phrases there. After he was gone, now Jesus said something else. I think that's, that's a clear transitionary phrase, right? So after Judas was gone out, the scene transitions to another point. I think, so if you, if you just keep reading, and then another transitionary phrase comes up, you're probably, you've probably missed the main climax, right? Now, if you turn to 1 Kings 3, just turn there really quickly, since it's probably still kind of fresh in your head. We were there last week. Notice how the passage ended. Look at 1 Kings 3, verse 18 onwards. This is how it ends. Sorry, 15 onwards. Then Solomon awoke, and he realized it had been a dream. He returned to Jerusalem, stood before the Ark of the Lord's Covenant, and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Then he gave a feast for all his court. I think that's the resolution to the passage. He woke up. It was a dream. He gave a feast. He celebrated. And then look at verse... um, 16, now, or then, right? It could be translated in different ways. Now, two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. Two new characters, the now signaling a new time as well. So after he woke up and he gave this feast, now two new characters were brought in. That's the signal, all right? The previous scene's characters have faded out, which is Solomon and God in the dream. And now it's no longer a dream. Now it's a new time. And two new characters come in, two prostitutes come in, signaling to you that perhaps a new scene has started. And then, in fact, it has, right? And then a dialogue happens. And then this is the famous scene where the two prostitutes, right, one of the, one of the prostitutes' child was dead, was killed, um, because, he was, you know, when they were sleeping, it was, um, he, was, he, he couldn't breathe. 
and then the king had to decide uh, this this child who's who is the true mother of this child, right? And then the king um, had to adjudicate that, and then had to say, okay, let's just cut the child into two, and then that's where the climactic moment of the passage comes in. And then the real mother said, don't don't cut the child, let him live, right? That's the real mother. So that's there's in itself already another scene, self-contained, a new setting, rising climb, rising tension. These two prostitutes are telling Solomon this story, and in the climax of what the king will ultimately say to discern who the true mother of this child is, right? So, does that help, Jackie? Okay, yeah, cool. So, yeah. 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 Um, well, I think that that is a significant implication, um, but I'm locating that as a subpoint because I think that exegetically that's part of the rising action. So notice that um, the disciple leaning back against Jesus said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it's he to whom I give the most of bread, right? So um, because I located that in the rising action, I think that that's a subpoint. You see? So you got to make that decision. Yeah. I think so, yeah. Yes, I think so. So think about a rising action as a series of anticipations which demand um, a kind of ending. Like, like a, I don't want to say resolution because I use resolution as the implications of things. But the climax is where the passage is peaking, so to speak. And then normally the resolution uh, is the narrator jumping back in in some way. But let's, let's go through another passage together so that maybe it could become clearer to us how this method goes, okay? So let's take a look at Mark there, 2, 1 to 12. And if you have your Bibles, maybe it's useful to turn there so that you can see the preceding and um, passage following the, the, this particular pericope. So just right off the bat, if you're there in Mark 2, notice how the end of Mark 1 goes. I think the end of Mark 1 is a clear resolution from the previous scene. Look at what it says there. Um, it says in verse 45 of Mark chapter 1, instead he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, which I think is indicating the resolution, like what are the implications of this last scene? Jesus could no longer enter a town openly but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. And then notice how Mark 2 begins, right? And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, so notice a new time, a new place, Capernaum. It was reported that he was at home. Okay, let me, let me just read the entire passage together, and then let's try to identify together the setting, the rising action, the climax, and then the resolution. 
okay? I'm going to need your participation in this, okay? This is less lecture mode and more participating together, all right? And we're going to take a look at this together. Let me read this passage for us. I'm reading from the ESV now. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. And if you look at verse 13, the beginning of verse 13 I'm using two different translations, guys. I'm sorry, by the way. So NIV, ESV, it's confused. I'm sorry. But anyway, but, but the beginning of verse 13, notice it says, once again, Jesus went out. So I think verse 13 clearly indicates a new scene. So the main point of this particular scene in verses 1 to 12 has already passed, okay? So verse 13 starts a new scene. So that's why I've isolated, I've isolated this passage. Verse 1 to 12 is one scene. It's a self-contained unit. I've isolated it. Now, given that we've isolated the passage, let's think through this passage together. Where do you think is the setting of this passage? Which verses or subverses would you include in the setting of this passage? One and two, okay. Why? Let's reason together. All right, so it's a new place, yep. Yeah. So let's just say that in, in Mark, the setting, I think that's right, Joanna. So notice the new place, the new location, the new time, the new characters being introduced. Let's just say that Mark 2, verses 1 to 2, or maybe potentially verse 3 is the setting. Okay? Let's just put it that way. 1 to 2 or 3. So the paralytic coming in, that might be the setting, that might be the beginning of the rising tension or the rising conflict. Okay, so that's the setting of the text. Where would you locate the rising action? So Joanna says up to verse 7. Who would agree or disagree? Don't be, don't be afraid. This is, there's an art to this as much as it is a science. Sorry, go ahead. Verse 4? So you want to you say it begins in verse 4. Okay. 
Right. Okay. So so let's just say verse four is the beginning of the rising action. The paralytic couldn't be brought near to Jesus, so they open up a roof. Okay. So that's a historical detail that might be helpful for you. Most houses in that time had a roof that was openable. Right. So they were lowering a paralytic from the roof. There were external staircases, by the way, to the house, and normally they would come up through the external staircases, and so the paralytic was lowered down through this roof. So that's verse 4, the beginning of the rising action. Where do you think it would end? Verse 7 or verse 8? Okay, debate. (laughs) Why verse 7? Why verse 8? Yeah. Okay. Hebron, why verse 7? Yeah. Yeah. And I and I think that that's that's a question worth debating. Is verse 8, the immediately there, um, creating more tension, or is that climactic? Or, uh, so, so Hebron would say that verse 8 is really beginning the climactic moment. And, but for Surya, verse 8 and 7, you would say, is still within the rising tension. Would you say that? Okay. Okay, so... Why? Why verse 10, Jackie? So it's easy to move in by verse 8 to verse 7. But if you notice, one of the appellate authorities who gets it goes, I'm, I will perform this action, I will heal the paralytic so that he will, and so the teaching of that phrase, and even the original Greek that was earlier understood it is, is the climax of what happens in verse 8. Right. Right. Anyone disagree or agree with that? Adrian, yeah. You you what? Sorry. You have a different view? Okay. What's your view? (laughs) (laughs) It's just in there. I mean, you could argue that the resolution, it doesn't really fall, but rather the resolution kind of just stays there. You could argue that. I think you could argue that. But, I, but, but if, you, if you do it that way, uh, what would be the main idea of this passage? Okay, so remember resolution are implications of the climax. Right, right. Um, yeah, so I think that's definitely the main issue. I, I think I think the rising tension has a lot of layers here. I don't want to reveal my cards too quickly, but um, 
I think that uh, the, the point at which Jesus actually forgives or proclaims forgiveness to this man, I, so let's just, I'll, I'll reveal one card of where I think this is. But when he says, your sins are forgiven, so um, in verse 5, when he first says it, son, your sins are forgiven, I don't think that's yet the climax of the passage, but rather I think that that adds to the tension. Because now they're, gonna be, they're, they're, they're wondering, why does this man speak like this, right? So it, I think it's anticipating more tension. And now the question is, what's Jesus going to do? What's he going to do to back up such an audacious claim as being able or having the authority to forgive sins? But it, it is, in a sense, um, a shocking moment. You could say that. It's a shocking moment. But I'm not so sure that it's yet the climax of the story where it, it, the, the action really is at a peak and then that's it, that's where it ends. And then the main point is right there. Go for it, yeah. Right. You could, yeah. Yep, exactly. I, I do think that that's the case, yeah. Um, so the rising action could, could have a kind of ebb and flow, kind of a conflict one and then conflict two right before it gets to the climax. You can't do that. So feel the freedom in this. Think about Clink's determinate meaning. Think about how this is as much a science as it is an art, okay? So I think there's a lot of validity in what Surya and Hebron were saying just now of where does the climax begin, verse 7, verse 8? But I think surely, I think verse 10, you get to the climactic moment where the climax, the climax of the climax, if you want to put it that way. Go ahead. Yep. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and I, and I think that's, I don't want to review my card, but I guess you got to review my, your card sometime, right? But notice, you're asking the right questions, right? So Jesus suddenly saying, get up and walk, which one is easier, forgiving sins or getting this man up to walk? That's supposed to perplex the crowd, and then when the man gets up, that's solidifying what Jesus is saying, okay? So I think, for example, let me just, let me just say where I stand, and then you can, you can debate with me on this, it's okay. And no, notice that you should feel the freedom to locate this in a certain sense, in, in, in a determinate meaning sort of sense, okay? So notice, I think that I want to know what you guys think of this. Where I would locate it is that the, the rising action is from verse 4 to 9. 4 to 9, and then the climax is 10 to 12a. And then the, this, this, the, the resolution is 12b, starting from so that. The so that, I think, is indicating a result clause or a part of the sentence that tells you the results of or the implications of what just happened. 
so that they were all amazed and glorified God. So I think the climax would be, but now that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, this is where everybody's like on the edge of their seats. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. That's the climax. Resolution, be amazed and glorify God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Okay, so you've taken a look at that. Now, what would be the main idea of this passage? Would the main idea of this passage be have openable roofs in your houses? No, all right? That's besides the point. Not only is that a historical contextual thing, but it's also in the setting. You can't say that. What the main point of this passage would be, gather around preaching. No. Though that might be a sub-point. That's a setting, right? There are, go ahead, Joanna. The Son of Man has the authority. Okay, we're jumping straight there. Okay, cool. Main idea. The, the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins and to heal. Or, or let's just say the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins, and he proves that or he authenticates that by doing miracles, namely healing. So I'm subordinating the miracle of healing as, as a means of authenticating the miracle of forgiving sins. So I think the main point is the forgiveness of sins rather than healing paralytic people, or paralyzed people, sorry. You see, you see what I mean? Why is that the main idea? Because I'm, I'm taking that straight from the climax, right? Look at what it says in verse 10, but that you may know. So what's the point of this miracle? So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So that should be your main idea. Go to Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. He really is the Lord who has the authority to forgive sins. That's good. That, I think that really is the main idea. And so an implication of that is be amazed and glorify God. That's a resolution. That's a, an application, a further application. If the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins, be amazed and glorify God the same way they were glorifying God and being amazed, okay? What's a, what's, what are subpoints that are good? Good points, but not the main point. If that's the main point, that's the implication. The Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins, glorify and be amazed. What are some subpoints? from this passage. That could be a subpoint. okay? So God has the power and ability to heal. That's where, that's where it is. So notice, if you make this passage about the healing of the paralytic primarily and the forgiveness of sins secondarily, you've missed the point, haven't you? You see what I mean? That's how you evaluate a sermon. If the main idea here is not actually the healing of the paralytic, but the forgiving of the paralytic, which is authenticated by the healing, you shouldn't preach this passage as if the, the healing is the main point. But rather, you subordinate that point to the forgiveness of sins. Okay? How about, how about this as a sub-point? Um, God has the authority to forgive sins, even apart or before your faith. Notice in verse 5, Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven. 
Notice the paralytic didn't say anything. It's not as if the paralytic came to Jesus saying, forgive my sins, Lord. He just did it, right? So Jesus actually just forgives sins right there and there. And the paralytic didn't even say anything about Jesus at all. And the paralytic got up and walked. So just feel that. And then, and then notice how a lot of preachers, for example, say, you don't have enough faith. For if you had enough faith, God would heal you. You notice how preachers could say that sometimes? The way for you to get healed is, or for you to get forgiveness sometimes is the strength of your faith. That's what determines it. But notice the paralytic says nothing in this passage. And he was healed and he was forgiven. And in fact, it was the forgiveness that creates the faith rather than faith as a prerequisite. That, that's, an, that's another sub-point that you could point out. That's a good question, right? It might be both, but notice the paralytic didn't say anything. And, and, and their faith for what? Was it the healing or was it the forgiveness of sins? It's almost as if, like, you came to Jesus with a broken leg and then Jesus gives you water. Like, I wasn't thirsty, Jesus. Like, that's not my immediate need. You see what I mean? I can't, like, obviously, I want my leg to be healed, but why are you giving me water? It's almost like that. It's like, you can almost imagine the paralytic, like, saying, Yo, that's not my main issue. But Jesus is saying, how about this as a sub-point, right? Your sin is a deeper immediate need than your physical illnesses. If your faith is in God who heals, just remember that God's priority perhaps is deeper than your priority, which is the forgiveness of sins. Sorry, was it Ronald or Adrian that raised up their hand? Oh, Ron, did you? Okay. Patrick, did you? Oh, was it you? Sorry, yeah. Sure. What about verse 3 and 4? The importance of church? Right. So that's, that's a decent sub-point, right? The, the fact that the church, friendship means bringing your friends to Jesus, right? Friendship means interceding for your friends. So I think that's another sub-point. But if you make this passage primarily about the intercession of the church or the help of the church to get you to Jesus, that might be a useful sub-point, but it, wouldn't, it shouldn't be the main point of the passage. You see what I mean? So I think it's pretty clear where the main idea is, how we got to the main idea. So just flash back a little bit to last week when we were taking a look at 1 Kings 3, right? 1 Kings 3, if you remember last week, where before Solomon had the dream, Solomon married an Egyptian woman, and Solomon was, um, um, was worshiping in high places, which apparently was a very valid thing to do um, at that point of time. If you make the passage about marriage and marrying interracially, that might be a good sub-point that you want to make, but it's not the main point. But rather, you should say that the main point is in the climax of the passage, which is desire wisdom as your primary companion before anything else. You see what I mean? And in the same way, in this passage, you can say a lot of things about healing, authority, and, and even the intercession of the friends as the church together. But 
subordinate all those points under the main point of come to Jesus for your deepest needs. He has the authority to forgive your sins. You see what I mean? Is that clear? How, how are you guys feeling? Good? Good? Is, is, that, is that clear? I'm almost tempted to go through another example before we even go to Psalms, but I don't know if we should. Questions, comments? You should go another example? Another example? All right. Vincent. Yep. Yeah, so I think that, so how, how do you think the, the, the text points to the authentication? So let, let's look at, so Vincent's question is, how does, the, how does the healing of a paralytic man authenticate Jesus' ability to, to, to forgive? So from verse 10 and 11. So Jesus is making a connection. You might know that I could forgive by my act of healing. How does the act of healing authenticate Jesus' ability to forgive sins? I think one answer could simply be that only God could forgive, I mean, only God can heal a paralytic. No, no human being has the ability to do this. And in the same way, no, ability has to, no, no human being has the ability to forgive sins, right? So, classic example, if Surya punches Chen, Physical abuse, terrible, right? And then um, Chen is hurting, she's crying, people are calling to get her to the hospital. And then I come to the middle, instead of carrying Chen, I go to Surya and then I say, I forgive you. Like, that's audacious, right? Because who am I? Because Chen was the one wrong. She should be the only one that has the authority and the ability to forgive Surya. But if I come in the middle and I forgive Surya, who am I to do that, right? But Jesus is somehow saying here, all the sins that the paralytic had ever done, was actually against Jesus primarily and not against other people. Like it's first against Jesus and so Jesus has the authority and the ability to forgive sins. And how does he prove that? Because it's intangible, right? If I just say, I forgive your sins, that's a spiritual transaction, if you want to call it that way, or spiritual communication. And it's not something that you can tangibly see. We Christians here have our sins completely cleansed and forgiven. We're pure. But you can't, on the outside, we still look very much the same. We're still flesh and blood, right? So how does Jesus authenticate it before them? Well, the miracle is not simply for the healing in and of itself, but rather serves to vindicate the fact that Jesus has the ability to do this. If that makes sense. Let's go through one more example just to solidify this, okay? And this is going to be an easy one because we're going to preach through the sermon tomorrow. In fact, Tazar is. So after the sermon, you can come up to Tazar and critique him. Genesis 32, verse 21. Sorry, 22 to 32. Ten verses. I'm going to open up the ESV so we're not confused. This is the famous passage of Jacob wrestling with God. Let's try to... Off the cuff here. I didn't prepare for this. Tazar did. So off the cuff here. Let's take a look at this passage and then let's divide it up into portions, okay? 
I'll read this passage for us, and then let's try to divide it up together. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children. By the way, I'm assuming you guys were here last week for the sermon, so you guys know where we are roughly, right? That's why I'm choosing this passage. Okay. And across the ford of the J-book, he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. Peniel, by the way, means face of God. Saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip and the sinew of the thigh. All right, let's start with the easy part. What is the setting of this passage? 22 to 23. Okay. Okay, I agree with Indit. Not because it is always wise for me to agree with Indit. Let's just say 32, 22 to 24a. How do we know that this was the setting? Sorry? It sets up, okay, it's informative, new information here. The same night, so telling you a time indicator, um, characters, and then finally setting up the scene by saying Jacob was left alone, okay? And this is before he was going to cross the stream to meet with Esau. This is a pivotal moment before he would finally meet his brother who was plotting revenge against Jacob at one point. And Jacob was left alone, okay? So now the rising action, therefore, has to happen between 24b until where? Thirty A. That one line. That's a tough one. That's a tricky one. So that's one option. Okay, go go sorry. So rising action twenty seven. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a solid point. So why 27, why 30A? Surya ended. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah. 
All right. And you're, 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 jump, you're jumping straight to the New Testament application. So, so remember, remember the, the, the diagram, right? Old Testament text, take it to the Old Testament meaning first, and then take it to Christ, and then take it to application. Remember that from last week? So you were, you were jumping there. So let's, let's, let's go to the Old Testament meaning first. They, would, they should die, right? But then somehow he's not dead here. Okay. I think I agree that 30B has to be part of the climax, but I'm not sure that that's the only part of the climax. Does that make sense? Thoughts from anyone else? 28. So you want to say that the rising action is all the way until 27? Okay. I think I agree with that. I think 24B to 27, the wrestling back and forth is a rising action. Surya's like nodding. He's like, yes, that's right, I'm right. Uh, um, 27. So I think that's where the rising action ends. And notice, I, think, I do think that there's a shift in tone, right, in verse 28 onwards. You're no longer wrestling. No longer, there's no longer like a, a violent back and forth. But rather, he said, then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. So I think the, the climax is verse 28 to verse 30. And then resolution would be 31 to 32. Roughly there. Okay. So... Um, Let's think, because this is an Old Testament text, okay? Let's think about this for a little bit. What will be the main idea in the context of the Old Testament itself? Like, what's the sense of this text? Let's not get to Christ too quickly, in other words. What is the sense of this text in and of itself first? So let's, let's rule out some things, okay? Let's, let's rule out that the sense of the text is have two wives. Don't do that, okay? So let's, let's rule that out because not only is that not historically like, applicable to us, but that's part of the setting, okay? So let's not do that. Let's not talk about how Jacob was left alone, so the best time for you to meet with God is alone. Like that might be a sub-point that you want to make in some context, sure, Jacob was left alone, so meet with God alone might be, but that's not the main point. Okay, so let's rule those things out from the setting. Those are setting tools, right? They're setting up the scene. What's another sub-point that maybe we want to indicate, but it's not the main point? Right. So how, how about this, right? So... Um, being chosen by God doesn't mean that your relationship with God has no friction, right? In this present life, perhaps this text is telling us some seasons of life, you will find that God and you as yourself are in a wrestling match. And, and what's a characteristic of a wrestling match? Your opponent and yourself are contradicting one another, right? 
In other words, if, if you really are worshiping the true God and he never contradicts you, maybe you're not worshiping the right God. You should expect God to contradict you in some cases. Maybe another sub-point here from the rising action, which is a very good point, but not the main point. Who won the wrestling match? Jacob, God, right? Almost like a contradiction here going on, right? Notice, it seems like Jacob was winning. Look at, look at what it says here. Verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob. In other words, it almost seems like Jacob was prevailing against him, right? And then in verse 26, it says, let me go. It's almost as if Jacob has, has him in a, in, a, in a tug, right? And he was losing. Let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. It almost sounds like Jacob was winning. But there's this curious statement in verse 25. Look at what the man did to Jacob. He touched his hip socket. And then the socket was out of joint. Okay, the image here, somehow Jacob was winning, but the man was wrestling with Jacob, and Jacob was winning, but all the man did was what? Ding. <laughs> and then the socket was out of joint. Like, like how powerful is this person? The, the image here is not, he took up some rock and smashed Jacob's hip, and it was broken. He just touched it, like a little, a little gentle touch, and Jacob limped for the rest of his life. So in one sense, Jacob won. In another sense, God was obviously more powerful than you. So maybe a sub-point would be, in your wrestlings with God, you have to lose. You have to lose. But somehow you, you, you lose by, but you, you win by you losing, right? When you realize that he's the source of your blessing, that he's still the authority in your life. That's when you win, but you do that by losing. Realizing that in your wrestling, at the end of the day, come to lose. Maybe that's the main point. I remember that's leading up to the main point. And I think the main point from verse 28 to 30, what might it be? If the climax is 28 to 30, that's where the main point is going to be. Where would you place it? How about this? See if you agree with me. God is not only the source of blessing, but is the blessing. So notice when Jacob finally relents and he's, he's, he has God right there, he says, give me the blessing, right? And, 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 and Jacob asked God, please tell me your name. And then God said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. But it doesn't tell him what the blessing was. So maybe that's not the point. Maybe the point, after all, is not the blessing in and of itself, but rather that Jacob got to know God. And in verse 30, so Jacob called the, the, the name of the place Peniel, or the face of God, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. All right? It's an Old Testament principle, biblical principle everywhere, like Indit said, that if you meet God face to face, you're going to be eviscerated. You would, you would die. He's too holy for you. 
your being just can't contain it. You're too sinful. You're too finite. The infinite, the infinite holiness of God will just consume you. So maybe what if the main point here is, God, so this, the sub-point would be God wrestles with you and you have to lose, but the main point is you will realize that God is not only the source of all blessings, but he is the blessing himself. He is enough. And meeting God face to face allows you to let go of your wrestling with God, allows you to rest and just say, I have seen God face to face and I have not yet, I have not been consumed. I have been delivered, okay? So if that's the Old Testament sense, that's the Old Testament meaning in and of itself. Jacob realizes after wrestling with God that God is not only the source of blessing, but is the blessing himself. Knowing God is the blessing itself. He is enough for you after all that wrestling. How does that point us to Christ? How does this passage point us to Christ? Christ lost, right? Christ lost a wrestling match, so to speak, against the forces of the world, right? Christ came down, and the world wrestled with Christ. And Christ lost the wrestling match, just as this man, whoever this man of God is, lost the wrestling match against Jacob, right? But by Christ losing, Christ is himself the face of God. And you can be with Christ forever. You can be, you've beheld Christ face to face. How does the Gospel of John begin, right? We have seen, oh, the, the letter of First John, we have seen him, we have touched him, we have, we have heard him, right? We, we, we've been with him. And Christ promises the Holy Spirit, he will dwell with you, God will dwell within you, and you will no longer be consumed. God will dwell among his people face to face, no longer by the temple, no longer mediated, by, by sacrifices, temples, or priests, but rather face-to-face, he dwells within you. But how did he do this? By condescending in such a way where he lost a wrestling match to man to inform you that he is enough and you could be with him face-to-face. That's your ultimate gift. Okay, so we can put it that way. And then the resolution in 31 to 32 is Jacob simply worshipped. I have seen God. I'd have no more need to wrestle. Right? I, I, I have lost my independence. I, I'm dependent upon God. God is enough. I've seen the face of God. I've been delivered. Does that make sense? Those, that's three examples, guys. How do you all feel? Good? Everything clear? Let's take a five-minute break, and then for 30 minutes, I'll tell us how to interpret the Psalms. Can we do that? Five-minute break. This, this, I just turned it on. Are you guys following, hopefully, a little bit more how to read narratives well? Yes, okay, sounds good. Okay, we're going to transition just a little bit for the next 30 minutes just to close off this cohort. We're going to think a little bit more about how to read the Psalms. So psal- the Psalms as a whole would be very different from how you read a narrative, right? A Psalm, most likely, it's not 
subdivided by scenes. You're not getting little scenes from one bigger scene. You're not getting a setting, rising action, you know, or conflict, and then a climax, and then a resolution, right? You're not getting that in a psalm. A psalm is, is poetry, and so it's a completely different genre. So the way you're going to read it is going to be quite different as well from how you're going to read a narrative, okay? So if you read the psalms, and you're, you're dividing them up into setting, conflict, climax, resolution, you're not reading it properly. We've got to read it according to its genre. So um, we might get to the specifics of how you read, uh, maybe, but I think we're just going to focus on the structure of the psalms, uh, the psalms as a whole, and just getting a grip on how best to read the psalms as a whole, okay? So if we're going to think about how to read the psalms, the psalms is poetry. It's poetry. In other words, there's, it's, it's written in such a way where it's lyrical. Sometimes in the Hebrew, it rhymes. It plays with words, words that go together. It mirrors. There are parallelisms that you want to go through. There are synonyms that you want to go through, rhymes that you want to go through. And that's really important. But it's not merely poetry. And so what does it mean to be poetic? I want to think about the, the poetic and the formative. Because I think the Psalms... Is a, is, is a poetic expression, but at the same time, it's, it's formative. It's poetic and it's formative. It's, it's poetic, formative, and in other words, it's, it's meant to help you express something, but it forms you into a kind of person that when you express something, this is how you would express it. So it's poetic. What does poetic mean? The poetic normally is in contrast to the formative. The poetic normally, in, in, in the ordinary usage, the poetic simply refers to your expression, your authentic expression, when you break out into song, you're expressing yourself. When you write a rhyme, you're trying to express something, right? In other words, it reveals something about your inner self. Um, what's poetic could also be referred to or associated with as the, the spontaneous. What comes out of you when you encounter specific situations. So, for example, when Adam met Eve for the first time, he says, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. That's poetry. So his spontaneous reaction, his poetic expression, when he meets Eve, is to break out into song, right? Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. I've never seen a woman like this, in other words, right? So, so he's saying that, 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 that there's something about Eve that evokes in him a kind of poetic expression that he can't help it but express himself in that way. So Psalms... It's poetry. It's, it's an expressive, um, it's, it's expression and song. They were meant to be corporately sung together as expressions of Israel's worship to Yahweh. So they were corporately sung together. They were meant to be used for private devotion. They were supposed to tell you how to express yourself, in other words, before God. But precisely because it tells you how to express yourself before God, it is also formative. It forms you into the kind of person that spontaneously, this is how you would express yourself. So, for example, if, if, I, if, if, um, if I see the sunset, and I'm the kind of person that has no poetic expression when I see the sunset. I don't break out into praise and worship unto God. Instead, I see the sunset, then I say, life is meaningless and this sucks, Right? My poetic expression towards the sunset is not formed by the Psalms. Because the Psalms would tell me when you see creation, when you see the beauties of creation, Psalm 19, for example, you say, my soul would exalt unto the Lord, right? 
Who has made the starry heavens but he? Who has made the sun but he? Who controls the moon and the stars and everything that is within it, right? The Lord your God, right? That's poetry. In other words, the psalm is telling you how you should express yourself when you encounter things like these. When you're betrayed by an enemy, do you simply say, I will take vengeance upon my own hands and destroy this person? No, right? If that's the way you poetically express yourself instinctively when you're betrayed by a person, when you're betrayed by an enemy, that means your heart isn't yet being formed by the Psalms because the Psalms mold your heart to poetically express yourself in a particular manner in a certain situation. So that when an enemy comes, another Psalm comes in your way and then it's a Psalm of lament, for example, and then suddenly you say, Lord, vengeance is in your hands. Or you would say, um, deliver me from the shame of your enemies. Lord, shut their mouths. Um, vindicate me, O Lord, from my transgressors, right? So in other words, you're, you're declaring it and you're giving it up to the Lord. Vindication, and, and you don't, so you don't have to defend yourself. Your, your instinctive reaction, your poetic expression, in other words, when an enemy betrays you, is not to take the matters into your own hands, but in accordance with the psalm, your instinctive poetic expression is to give it up unto the Lord. See that Lord is, the Lord your God is a God of vengeance, and he will take it up for yourself. So the Psalms is between the poetic and the formative. It forms you into the kind of person that when things happen to you, your poetic expression would be that which is recorded in the Psalms. And interestingly enough, the Psalms, I think, has the whole full range of human emotions because it responds to the full range of human experience, right? Um, John Calvin would argue that the Psalms reflect to us the mirror of the soul. In other words, if you know the full capacity of your emotions, if you want to know the full capacity of your emotions or what your heart could say to God, what your heart ought to say to God in any kind of situation, go to the Psalms. Go to the Psalms. So you might want to say that the Psalms together indicate to us the ideal emotional life of the ideal man. This is what the ideal human being's emotional prayer devotional life looks like. Notice it's a corporate thing. So, so the ideal emotional man sings these things in corporate unity with other Christians. Notice at the same time it's a devotional thing where, where the Psalms indicate to you if you're a Christian, you can express yourself in these ways. And in fact, you ought to express yourself in these ways. And so the Psalms are kind of a divine mandated way for you to pray back to God. If you want to know the kind of prayers that for sure will be fulfilled by God, you pray the Psalms. Understood properly, of course, but, but the Psalms are the divinely ordained way that you ought to pray before God. So if you think about Tazar's sermon from last week, how he talks about Jacob praying God's promises back at God. In the same way, the Psalms tell us these are God's words for you to repeat back to God, right? If, if your parent promises you um, that on Sunday you're going to go to, I don't know, Dufan or something, you can come up to your parents Saturday night and say, Dad, you promised that we would go to Dufan. So, so your dad has no right to say, I never said anything like that, right? You're, you're, you're requesting your dad's um, promises to you back at him. But not only is the Psalms petitionary, though, it, it, again, it expresses the kind of the emotional life that you should get as 
the ideal human being. And that's going to be instructive for us because as we're going to see, the Psalms not only um, declare to us Psalms of praise, Psalms of thanksgiving, but they're also Psalms of lament, for example. Psalms of despair, you, want, you want to almost want to say. If you read, for example, Psalm 88, which is our, one of my favorite examples, the Psalm doesn't end with any kind of resolution. It doesn't end with any kind of climax or, 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 or remedy to your pain. It simply says the darkness is my best friend. Right? Which means that if you're a Christian and you're going through a season of difficulty, why should you be surprised that you might feel that the darkness is all that there is? Because Christians can go through those moments. If, the, if this is contained in the Psalms, that means that's not a sin for you to be a Christian and for you to feel in that way. Whereas oftentimes I think bad counseling goes like this. Like if you're feeling that kind of season of drought, if you're not feeling God's light, you should really question your salvation, right? That, that's terrible counseling because the Psalms testify otherwise, that the Psalms could say that you can feel today like all there is is the dark. Where's God? God? Psalm 13, for example. How long would you forget me, O God? Have you ever had a friend, for example, come up to you and then you say, to, and that friend says to you, I think God has forgotten me. And then have you ever felt the inclination, the inkling even to say to that person, look, Christian, guys, see? <laughs> like, how can you be a Christian and feel like God has forgotten you? How dare you, right? And then you read the Psalms and you say, and then the psalmist over and over again would say things like, how long would you forget me, O Lord? So somehow it is part of the Christian life that you might feel that God has forgotten you. That validates certain emotions. You see what I mean? And that should assure you that when you face moments like that, it doesn't mean that God has left you. It doesn't mean that this is a surprise to God. Rather, inspired scriptural authors have felt that way. And that's incredibly comforting to you. Let me just talk about the structure of the Psalms here. And we can only go through this really quickly, but I think this will really help us because oftentimes I think you pick out, you read the Psalms, and it's just a collection of songs, then they're isolated songs, not connected to one another. What's the structure of the whole thing, right? It's almost as if, uh, people people are uncomfortable in other parts of the scriptures, then they come to the psalm because it's comforting to them because they don't care about context anymore. And then they can just dip into Psalm 30 or Psalm 144, and then they can say, well, I could just you know pray this out loud right now. But, but they're actually, the psalms are structured in a particular way. And, and the beginning of the psalms actually indicate to us a clue to how they're structured. Look at Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And the law there doesn't just refer to the Ten Commandments. The law in the original Hebrew is the Torah. What does the Torah refer to? Is it the Ten Commandments? No, sorry, what? How, how they should live, but there's more specifically, like the Torah refers to something really specific. First five books of the Bible, right? So notice here, so if you're reading the Psalms in Psalm 1, 1 to 2, I try to read it like this. But his delight is in the Torah of the Lord, and on his Torah, he meditates day and night. So this does not mean that you have to meditate on the Ten Commandments specifically, but rather on the first five books of the Old Testament. So 
five books of the Old Testament. In other words, what you're supposed to be meditating on is not merely the commands of God, but God's acts to Abraham, Jacob, Adam, God's acts to Moses and the Exodus, God's dealings with Israel in the wilderness. That's what you meditate on. In other words, not just merely God's commands, but God's redemptive acts, God's character, everything that is said about him in the books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, um, Deuteronomy, and Numbers. Numbers, Deuteronomy, sorry. Does that make sense? So the first five books of the Bible, that's a clue of how the Psalms are structured. The Psalms are actually broken up into five books. The Psalms are broken up into five books that is patterned after the first five books of the Old Testament and Israel's history leading up to the exile in the beginning of the, uh, in the closing of the, of the Old Testament. The, and each of the five books of the, of the Psalms close with a doxology. What's a doxology? Each of the five books of the Psalms close with a doxology. What's a doxology? Praise God for whom all blessings flow, right? Uh, praise Him, all creatures here below, Father, Son, Spirit, amen, amen, right? So I want us to see this. In each of the endings of the, of the five books of the Psalms, you're going to get a doxology. So the first book of the Psalms, for example, is in Psalm 1 to 41. That's the first book of the Psalms. And notice how Psalm 41 ends. But you have upheld me because of my integrity and set me in your presence forever. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Notice that. That's a doxology. The only place where this happens is at the end of those five books. And then, in Psalm 72, which is the ending of the second book. So, so, so the second book is Psalm 42, is Psalm 72. Okay? And if you read Psalm 72 at the beginning, it says, here's how the songs of David end. Because it's, it's indicating a transition from David's kingship to Solomon's kingship. And look at how Psalm 72 ends. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. Notice, the prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. So if book one is about God establishing his kingdom, or the Davidic kingdom, and book two is talking about how the book is talking about David himself ruling as the king and then transitioning to Solomon. Book three asks the question, where is the kingship of David going? So notice how Psalm 89 ends in book three. So book three is Psalm 73 to Psalm 89. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Notice the doxology. So Psalm 72 to 89, it has this sense of uncertainty. Where is God's kingship going? And it ends with that note. The doxology is still there. Like, so, so bless the Lord nonetheless, but Lord, how long will this, will this uncertainty go? And then from Psalm 90 to 106, the Psalms transition again into a time of um, not only uncertainty, but a, a, a gap between 
God's promises and the reality that you face. Because at this period uh, of these Psalms, Israel was now in exile. They're no longer in Canaan. They're no longer in the promised land, but rather they were, the northern kingdom was disbanded by Assyria. Southern kingdom was exiled into Babylon. And so they're in exile. They're not under their own king. They're under an alien king. They're not in their land. They're in a foreign land. And so there's a gap between the reality that God promises a king and God promises a land and the reality that what? They are in exile. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt a gap between God's promises that Jesus is king, Jesus is ruler, but you just don't feel that in the reality? Like you, you feel that everything is going wrong. You feel persecuted. You feel that God really isn't in control. Things are just not going how you expect it to go. So, so how, what do you do with this gap of reality? What do you do with that? So those are the kind of psalms that are going to be presented to you from Psalm 90 to 106. So notice how 106 ends. Another doxology, ending that book. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. And let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. Another doxology. And then the last one, the last book, Psalm 107, all the way to 150. Uh, focuses on instructions on how to live in exile. How do you live before God when things are tough? How do you live in the day-to-day in exile? And that's why you get this really long psalm, Psalm 119. It's, it's a psalm that is patterned after the Hebrew alphabet. It's an incredibly long psalm. But that psalm is all about the law of the Lord and how to live before God. And then the doxology is from Psalm 146 to 150. So if you read Psalm 146 to 150, there's a kind of repetition there of doxologies. Just, just keep saying, praise be to God, praise be to God, praise be to God. Praise God, all creatures. Praise God, my soul, everything. So it's one long doxology from 146 to 150. Right? So, let me just write down the Psalms, if it's the, the five books of the Psalms, so that it's just entirely clear. You have book one, which talks about how the God's kingdom is established. Two, the transfer from David to Solomon. Three, uncertainty of the Davidic kingship. Like, why aren't the kings... walking like David did. Four, gap in exile. Like, God is saying that he's still king, but somehow Israel is not in the land and they have no king. Five is faithful living in exile, or just faithful obedience to the law. So that's the structure of the, of the five books of the Psalms. Any questions about that? And each, each book of the psalm closes with a doxological note. And that's, that gives us a clue of why we also close with the doxology every time we have morning worship on Sundays. So that should inform uh, how you go about reading the psalms a little bit, right? That, that tells you a bit about how they're patterned in their history. 
And if you survey the Psalms in particular moments of your life, I think some Psalms would somehow just jump out at you. Um, the Psalms really are for you, right? I think a lot of us, it's, it's good and proper for us to emphasize that the Bible is not really about us. It's about God's glory. That's very good and proper. But at the same time, it is about us in subordination to God's glory. But specifically the Psalms, they were written to help you, to help you in certain seasons of life that are just fitting for you. And this, this is the way you ought to pray in that particular season of life. So if you're, for example, feeling a sense of uncertainty of where the future is going, maybe dip into Psalm 72 to 89. If you're, if you're feeling a gap, right, maybe dip into Psalm, 80, uh, Psalm 90 to 106. Maybe you're, if you're feeling, right, God, you say you're king, but where are you now? Maybe dip into those psalms. Well, how can I dip into, uh, you know, it doesn't mean that there aren't psalms of lament here just because the third book is about this uncertainty and the fourth book is about the gap. There are some psalms of lament dispersed, but if you pattern the books and read the psalms according to the books that they're in, then you're going you're gonna to get a sense in which, you know, what season in your life you're going to get into. You're going to dip into that book. If you feel in a time of season and praise and, and victory, maybe you want to go to the first 40 books of the Psalms. Or, or if you feel you need guidance and delighting in the law of God, maybe you want to dip into the five, fifth book of the Psalms. Um, so not only are there Psalms divided into five books, there are also three types of Psalms. There are two ways to categorize the Psalms. The first way is to divide the Psalms according to the five book divisions. The second way is to categorize the Psalms into types of Psalms. And there are maybe more than these, but typically there are three kinds of Psalms that you want to focus on. There are Psalms of hymns or praise or adoration. And these Psalms simply exalt the character and acts of God. So Psalm 150 would be an example of this. This is just, an ex just exalting in God's name, God's character, his creation, his redemption, whatever it might be. And then there's Psalm of Lament, which is by far, I think, the majority Psalm. And the Psalms tell you how to lament. In, in times of sorrow, how are you to pray? This is manifested in Psalm 13, Psalm 88, Psalm 77. And then there's also Thanksgiving, Psalms of Thanksgiving, where you give personal thanks to God. You're not just praising Him for His character, but you're you're, you're, you're kind of personalizing that and saying, Lord, you've done these things for me, for us. So let me thank you. Questions so far about that? Okay, last five minutes, then we're done. Now, a way we can get at reading the Psalms, I think, is um, this uh, four-step approach that I, put, that, I put, that I put here. The first way that you can um, read the Psalm is to ask yourself this question. How did this Psalm specifically tell me how the perfect human should feel? How does this Psalm specifically tell me how the perfect human should feel? So... If the Psalms express to me how I'm supposed to pray to God, uh, how I'm supposed to feel, let me just tell myself, this is, how you're, this is how you're supposed to pray, this is how you're supposed to feel. 
if you're feeling betrayed, this is how you're supposed to feel. If you're feeling in victory, this is how you're supposed to feel. That's the first step. Take the psalm at face value. Take it on its bare fact. Take it in itself and say, this, Lord, is how I'm supposed to feel in this particular situation. When I properly interpret the psalm, if it's a psalm of victory, this is how I should feel. I give thanks to God. I don't exalt over my enemies and just crush them and condescend. Rather, I give thanks to the Lord. He is the source of my victory, for example. And then think about the second step, which is the fact that Jesus prayed these psalms. These are the psalms that actually shaped Jesus' devotional and prayer life. How did Jesus pray the psalms? Think about the fact that Jesus was living on earth as a devout Jewish man following the Torah, following the psalms, singing these psalms in corporate worship. How do these psalms, in other words, express Jesus' emotions because he's the perfect man? So, an obvious example, if you think, think about the psalm of lament, how long, O Lord, would you forget me? How long, right? And then you think about the fact that Jesus was a man of sorrows. He wept in certain periods of time, right? How long, O Lord, shall, shall, your, shall my enemies exalt over me? Do you think that Jesus had moments in his life that reflected that kind of psalm? How about psalms of victory? O Lord, you have trampled the enemies from under my feet. Psalm 110, for example. Maybe when Jesus was resurrected. In other words, associate the psalm that you're reading to a particular phase of Jesus' ministry. Think about the psalms as expressions of a particular phase of Jesus' ministry. Does that make sense? So B and C kind of go together. Not only are you associating the psalm with a particular phase of Jesus' ministry, but they show us how they point to Jesus, not merely as Jesus praying them, but also maybe because these prayers of the Psalms were not fulfilled by Jesus. Now, let, let me be careful with that. What do I mean by not fulfilled? Well, for example, in particular Psalms, there are texts that say, God, vindicate me from before my enemies. In other words, let, let me not be put to open shame. There's so many Psalms talk about it in that way, right? You are my rock and my refuge. Let me not be put into open shame. My enemies surround me, O Lord. They encamp against me. Now, in one sense, that's fulfilled in Jesus, right? Because Jesus had enemies all around him. Jesus prayed for vindication. But how is it not fulfilled? God didn't vindicate him. God allowed him to be put into open shame, right? So, so the psalm was kind of the antitype, and Jesus, uh, so, so, I'm sorry, Jesus was the antitype of the psalm. The psalm, in other words, posed as a contrast to what Jesus received. So when the ideal man should be vindicated and should be praying for vindication, Jesus, the true ideal man, was not vindicated. Jesus, the true ideal man, was put to open shame. Does that make sense? So the last step, step D, is how is Jesus dying and raising? How did, how did he die? Sorry, man, that grammatically is not correct. I must have been like half asleep when I, I don't know what happened there. So sorry about that last phrasing of the question. How was Jesus' death and resurrection the means by which you can now pray the Psalms? In other words, Jesus died and was raised so that you can pray these Psalms back to God. Jesus purchased these Psalms for you. So we can say, for example, that the vindication Psalms, for example, Lord, vindicate me before my enemies. Those Psalms of lament 
of not feeling like God is vindicating me, feeling that I am bare naked and ashamed before men, maybe you can say that Jesus was not vindicated so that you might be vindicated in your resurrection, right? So Jesus' lack of vindication purchased for you this psalm so that you can pray the psalm to God and God for sure will vindicate you in your resurrection. Does that make sense? Or, for example, how can you say, blessed, Psalm 32, blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven, whose transgressions are covered by the Lord. How can you pray that psalm? How do you know that your sins have been covered and your transgressions have been blotted out by God? Because there was one whose transgressions was not his, but he took on. So we can pray Psalm 32 and say, I am blessed. My forgiveness has been covered because I was, what? Covered by Jesus Christ. He was the one who covered me for my sins. You see what I mean? Because of Jesus' death, sacrifice, and resurrection, you can now actually pray these Psalms and expect them to be granted to you and expect them to actually apply to you. Or how can you say for sure, you know, Psalm 103, classic Psalm, Blessed, uh, bless the Lord, O my soul, uh, bless the Lord, O, o His holy name, right? Who what? Rescues me from the pit, who heals all my diseases, who forgives all my iniquity, who renews my youth as of the eagle, who loves me as the, as the Father um, loves His children, who removes my sins from, as far as the east is from the west. How do you know that you could pray that? Think about Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus was in the pit, but he wasn't rescued. Jesus wasn't rescued or renewed like the eagle, right? Jesus wasn't healed when he was dying. Jesus, who is the true son of God, was not with the Father at the point of crucifixion. You see, these are psalms, and Jesus actually posed the antitype or the contrast of the psalm so that you can pray the psalm, and it actually does apply to you. Does that make sense? So if you can put it into three steps. First, think about the Psalms as a prescription. How does this form you poetically? This is how you should express yourself. This is the ideal human devotional life, the human emotional life, the human corporate life, human worship. And how is a Psalm a Psalm of Jesus? In other words, how does this Psalm relate to a particular phase of Jesus' ministry? How might have Jesus applied the Psalm in his own life? How might have Jesus pray the psalm himself. And a subset of that is, how is the psalm fulfilled or not fulfilled in Jesus' life? So that third, how did Jesus um, um, die for you so that you might have the psalm, so that you can pray the psalm to God? How had Jesus' death and resurrection purchased the psalm for you so that you might pray it? Okay? So as an exercise, you can go home and go through Psalm 77 and do that for yourself. But let me just show you from the first three verses, okay? How might this go? So first step. This is one of my favorite psalms because I, I struggle with insomnia. So the psalm is fantastic if you struggle with insomnia. Look at verse 4. You hold my eyelids open. I love that. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. In other words... God is the cause of your insomnia. Take comfort in that. Like, like that's huge. And, and notice, just the first three verses, let's take a look at the first step, okay? How does the psalm reflect the ideal human emotion? Well, 
This is a psalm of lament. It's a psalm that cries out to God. You're in distress. You're, you're lamenting before God. So direct your crying to God. I cry aloud to God. When you're in times of, by the way, when you're suffering, when you're in times of distress, you're at a very vulnerable moment, right? Think about any movies you've seen, any experiences that you had. You, you go through a breakup. What is your first instinct? So many of us, especially, you know, maybe you weren't a Christian before, you're a secularist. You go through a breakup. What's your first instinct? I got to get drunk. I, I got to just forget all my sorrows. I got to go gambling. I got to just travel and just indulge and, and, and all these sort of things, right? And just, just binge Netflix and destroy my soul with, with all these crappy shows, right? But so, so notice, what, is, what are you supposed to do when you're crying out, when you're lamenting? What do you do? You cry aloud to God. Direct your attention, in other words, to God. Don't, in your time of vulnerability, in your time of lament, don't, don't turn to anything other than God. Go to, cry aloud to God, right? Don't run to anything else other than God, but go to God. Allow to God and he will hear me. In other words, it's not wrong for you to wallow. Not for too long, but it's not wrong for you to lament in such a way where you really are crying aloud to God, letting your prayers heard. So again, in the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. In other words, somehow you, you toil through the night and you can't sleep. You're just, you're just, your brain is anxious. You can't sleep. You, you, you're not weary. And my soul refuses to be comforted. So you could be a Christian and you know that God should comfort you. But somehow, even when you're turning to God, you feel that you're not comforted. You feel that gap of the reality of the fact that you should be comforted, but God isn't comforting to you. And notice, when I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like you are in such a distressed place and someone mentions God to you and your first thought is, what a pat answer. I know God is near. Like, stop. That doesn't help me. You see? That doesn't help me. And someone goes to you, maybe you should come to a community group tonight. That would help. And it's, I, I, I've been going. It sucks. You, know, you feel that. And, it, and, and notice, instead of turning away from God with these kind of emotions to say, Lord, I've been going to community group. I've been seeking your face. I've been with Christians. I've been trying to sing these songs. I've been hearing your sermons. But when, every time I remember you, I just moan. I, I, just, I just don't feel anything. So if you encounter someone like this, do you think of a serious Christian or do you think of a terrible Christian? Let me just ask you, let's be honest. Like, is this a bad psalmist? Like, why is this here? Like, you read the Bible and then you say, I, I mean, I've read, if you read a particular liberal commentaries, for example, there are psalms that ask God for vengeance. Like, Lord, these enemies are terrible. Like, I can't destroy them. You destroy them. That's basically what the psalms say. And then these commentaries from these liberal commentators who just take parts of the Bible that they like and then they, they throw out other parts of the Bible that they don't like, they say, well, every person's a sinner. The psalmist is a sinner, so that means this psalm is an expression of a sinner's prayer. Like, so don't pray like the psalmist. This, see, if you read the Bible that way, it's, it's terribly different, right? So when you read this, this is supposed to be an expression of the ideal human life. Have you ever thought about that? All right, it, it does come to a resolution in Psalm 77, but notice the word salah there at the end of uh, verse 3. Salah simply means pause. 
Salah simply means, all right, stop here, don't keep reading just yet, or don't keep singing just yet, however they used to sing this psalm, right? Just, just stop there, in other words. Don't, so, okay, what are the implications of this when you're counseling someone? Right, someone comes to you, right? Terrible financial reversal, and they're like crying, right? Here's your temptation as a bad counselor. <laughs> Here's your temptation as a bad counselor. All right, stop. Let's pray. <laughs> all right, just, just stop crying, all right? You're a sinner. God loves you. Let's, let's close it there. You're, are you a Christian? Like, like, stop crying. Let's just get to Jesus. Remember, Jesus died the death that you should have died and lived the life you should have lived. Like, you're so impatient, you would just want to get them there immediately. But you can't. You see what I mean? Let them, in other words, go through the emotional process. And maybe they're at an emotional state where they're not ready to hear that yet. And let them be. It's okay. Maybe, sometimes, the counseling session doesn't have to have a resolution immediately. And that's profound. Okay, so... Just think, so that's, that's the first step, right? Here, this is the ideal human devotional life. When you are suffering and when, you're, when the thought of God makes you moan, turn to God anyway. Turn to God anyway. Don't run. Don't go to your little man caves and play Dota for like five days. All right? Don't, don't uh, go and look for an inappropriate relationship. Don't, don't go thinking, all right, my church hasn't done enough for me. Just don't run. Go turn, turn to God. That's the first step. Maybe that's the first step. Second, how did Jesus pray this? Especially verse 2. In the night my hand is stretched out without wearying. Jesus was so not comforted at the Garden of Gethsemane. Right? He couldn't sleep. What was the disciples doing? sleeping, right? Jesus, the ideal man, who, when he thinks about the wrath of God being poured out and the betrayal of man, could not sleep, right? And his disciples slept soundly. And notice the contrast there, right? When there's a, there's a physical storm, Jesus sleeps, the disciples were awake, panicking. When the wrath of God was coming, the disciples sleep, Jesus was awake. Just notice the contrast of, like, emotions, right? Notice the disciples were more afraid of a physical storm than the wrath of God. Jesus, the entire opposite, right? He couldn't sleep. He couldn't. He was so weary, but he couldn't sleep. He was, he was sweating flesh and blood, right? He was sweating drops of blood, and his arms were stretched out at Golgotha, right? And when he remembers God, he can only moan because truly the Father had forsaken him. So suddenly, when you're crying aloud to God and you're praying the psalm, and you go, you go through the psalm, and then you reorient yourself to say, how did Jesus pray the psalm? It gives your emotions a different light, right? Then suddenly, it does orient yourself to say, my sufferings are small compared to Jesus. And you say, Lord, because you cried aloud to God, because your hands were stretched out, I cannot cry aloud to God in the night, and I know God will never forsake me because God has forsaken Jesus. And then, so when you get to verse 6, I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever cease? Are his promises at an end for all time? 
Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shed up his compassion? What's your answer? He hasn't. Why? Because he wasn't gracious to Jesus. Because his love ceased against Jesus. Because the Lord spurned Jesus. In verse 10, I said to this, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High, to the eternal God, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? Just note, just take through the Psalms, take it at face value. Here's the process of your prayer. Lament, take it to God. Maybe you need to pause there. Then ponder God's deeds. How do you ponder God's deeds? How was the psalm prayed by Jesus? How was the psalm fulfilled and not fulfilled in Jesus? And how has Jesus fulfilled the psalm or purchased the psalm so that you could pray it? And God will definitely fulfill it for you. Does that make sense? Last questions. We're done. All right, guys. No questions? Let me pray for us then. Father, we thank you for um, your generosity that you've given us not merely access to you, but also the words with which to come to you. Father, help us understand the narrative of Scripture, the many scenes that unfold throughout the Scriptures that tell us about the grand narrative of your Son, Jesus Christ, who prayed the prayers that we should be praying but continually failed to, and whose prayers were not fulfilled so that our prayers could be. Father, help us worship you in prayer and help us read your Bibles well. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you. When's the next summer? After the summer.